Welcome to episode 63 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week, leveraging Zoom for now, I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Courtney Blodgett, founder of Yield Positive and longtime climate champion. Yield Positive's mission is to help everyday investors yield positive, positive returns, positive impact through sustainable investing. They speak our language, not banker language. Their language is one of doing good in the world while making profit. Investing is scary. Sustainable investing is confusing. Yield Positive aims to translate the risks and complications to provide understandable and relevant content for educational purposes to help people make the best financial decisions for their economic situations and in alignment with their values. We all have different value priorities, so Yield Positive provides a diverse set of information. Check out yieldpositive.com for more information. And speaking of priorities, during this time of uncertainty, please remember we're all in this together. While being careful and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Courtney's work focuses on creating innovative business models and technologies which help the world to be a more sustainable place. In addition to her extensive experience in renewable energy, smart grids, and sustainable investing, she's worked on agriculture, forestry, alternative protein sources, sustainable value chains, and last-mile connectivity. Courtney is also passionate about traveling, which helps her open her mind. She's lived in 10 countries across four continents and traveled to many more. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here talking to Courtney Blodgett, founder of Yield Positive, and somebody that has worked on climate change in a myriad of ways her entire life. Courtney, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. You're very welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. You said that you've been doing climate change your whole life. Can you talk about the moment where you realized that was what you were going to focus on? Yeah, I mean, my whole life is maybe a bit too strong. I would say my whole adult life. When I was going into university, I knew that I wanted to study environmental science. I started off studying botany, a lot more botany and soil. And then I did a semester abroad in Australia and took an environmental policy course and was asked to write a paper about environmental framework and wrote it about Kyoto Protocol before it went into effect. So this was 2003. And that was it for me. I said, okay, this was what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I was fascinated by the topic of climate change. I thought it was really important and really exciting. And so from there on in, kind of everything I've done has been in the realm of climate change. Why is climate change mitigation important to you? 
It's important to me because I think it's the most important topic in the world right now. It crosses every issue. It crosses every social justice issue. You know, when I think of racial equity and gender equality, when I think of the natural environment, when I think of poverty, everything is impacted by climate change. And if we don't act to kind of reduce the rapid rate of climate change that we're seeing now, particularly the most vulnerable communities and vulnerable environments around the world will be harmed. And so for me, it is the single most important and very cross-cutting topic that we can work on. When you meet someone that doesn't understand the science behind climate change or just doesn't believe in it, how do you talk to them about it in a way that helps them to understand it? Yeah, so I lived in Rwanda for quite a few years and learned a lot of really valuable life lessons there. And one of them is around this topic. I was working on a project doing sustainable agriculture, so helping farmers to improve the efficiency of their crops and try to use less inorganic fertilizers. And I was going out with my colleagues to talk to farmers about climate change. And I was curious how this was going to go. We were asking rural farmers of their thoughts on climate change. And it blew my mind. I mean, in terms of understanding of climate change, or at least the impacts of climate change, those farmers understood far better than anybody I had ever talked to. And they were really on the front lines of seeing what is happening because of the shift in seasons, because of shift in rainfall patterns. And so... That was really helpful for me to clarify that everybody is feeling, for the most part, the impact of climate change. And so if you can bring it down to that level that people understand and what they feel in their life and what differences they've seen, you don't need to call it climate change. And I think most people, whether they're supportive of climate action or not, can understand that things look different in the world now than they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Very different and getting more different all the time, it seems. Yes, particularly right now. Speaking of right now, can you talk about how the pandemic has impacted your thoughts about climate change? Yeah, it's been really a fascinating time from a climate mitigation perspective. I'm not going to talk about the impact side of things, but you know, I think the volatility around oil is fascinating to watch right now. So not just having seen negative oil prices, but the drop in demand as well, and also how oil and gas companies are responding. So the oil and gas companies that don't have their head in the sand, so mainly the European ones, are realizing that this might be, hopefully, this is peak oil. We've already passed that. And so you had the CEO, Shell, come out and say that they're cutting lots of capital expenditures for upstream oil exploration, but they're maintaining their budget for renewables. And a lot of the oil companies are cutting their dividends for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And that's just a really dramatic shift in the world of oil. And we're seeing that right now in a time of chaos, it's renewable energy that's giving us stability. Stability is a really good thing right now because we don't have a lot of it in the world. So I think that's an exciting shift. And, you know, it remains to be seen what happens when everything opens back up. But I definitely think that shift is there. And also in terms of investments, I mean, we've seen environmental, social and governments funds outperform their counterparts that aren't 
sustainable. And a lot of that comes from from oil prices as well. So there's just a lot of things that have shifted. What has happened around the oil prices hasn't only been from COVID. There's a lot of other market influencers out there, but it's just a really different time right now for the oil and gas world. Yes, Shell has made a lot of interesting and I think good moves with regards to renewables. A lot of interesting purchases, really getting engaged in the change. I agree. And and when I was working in Sub-Saharan Africa, I saw them there supporting a lot of clean energy and energy efficiency projects. And at first I was surprised by it, not just Shell, some of the other European oil companies too. And seeing that they are looking at it from every angle, I think is great and where we need to go. They've also received much more clear signals that that's the only way Europe is going to be in the future. Yes. And I think that's one difficult challenge that we have in the U.S. is around our regulatory framework and our government. Those signals are not as clear right now, clearly. And we definitely see that impact. But I think shareholders' voices are starting to be heard. And shareholders in the U.S. as well are really starting to push on a lot of major companies to start to take action to reduce their emissions. Can you talk about Yield Positive, what Yield Positive does, what you do, and also other things that you are working on? Sure. So I founded Yield Positive under its different name, but close to a year ago now. And I founded it because there's a lot of talk in the market right now that environmental, social, and governance investing or sustainable investing is really growing, that you have 70% of millennials who are interested in more sustainable investments. And it's a very hot topic. BlackRock made a really large announcement earlier this year about how they need to look at all angles of triple bottom line, people, profit, and planet, when they were looking at investments. But when I was looking around, there was very little out there for the retail investor or the everyday investor. Most information on ESG investing or sustainable investing is focused on institutions or high net worth individuals. And I've been doing my own sustainable investing for more than 15 years, just plugging away at it and doing my own research. And from the knowledge I've gained in my career, it's allowed me to do those learnings. But I know how hard it is to find that information. So I was frustrated by that. And so I said, okay, this is definitely a gap. Where can people go for this information? And so I founded Yield Positive with the mission to be able to provide that information to the everyday person about how you can become a sustainable investor. So that's what I do with Yield Positive. And I also, because I do find energy fascinating, I couldn't get fully away from it. I consult for a really amazing built environment and energy services company called McKinstry. And so a third of our emissions come from electricity and 75% of that comes from buildings. And you have a huge amount of waste in the built environment. It's a really pretty inefficient sector, one of the few sectors that have not improved in efficiency. McKinstry has really taken the lead on how do we try to innovate that waste out of the built environment in terms of energy? How do we push towards net zero carbon goals? How do we share energy? How do we look at buildings as part of an energy community as opposed to a standalone island? You already talked a little bit about how you got where you are, but can you fill in the blanks about your prior background? Yeah, it's not a direct line. I've done a lot of things, which has been really exciting and interesting. So started off on the science side after I kind of had that aha moment. I did research on climate change science, working with atmospheric chemists. 
that was great for helping me to see the proof for myself of the impacts that humans are having on climate change. And then I shifted over to working a bit on the impact side of things. So pretty early on when only a few governments were really thinking about how climate change is going to impact their populations. I worked with the UK government for a little while on impacts and adaptation. And then I fell into the carbon market. So under the Kyoto Protocol, you could do projects in developing countries that help sustainable development and reduce emissions and developed countries could buy those emissions reductions. And so for five years, worked on renewable energy, energy efficiency projects all over the world and just learned a ton and really saw the impact that you could have in developing countries through climate projects. And then I decided, okay, I'm flying back and forth to developing countries. It's not great in terms of my carbon footprint. And I felt a little uncomfortable that I was a fly-in, fly-out person. And so I applied for a UN job and got a UN job working on climate change in Rwanda. So I was a government advisor on carbon markets and climate change, so based in the government of Rwanda. So, yeah, then stayed and worked in Rwanda on a variety of projects for governments, for private sector, all related to renewable energy and energy efficiency and sustainable agriculture. Long story, did a few other things along the way, worked on a lot of regulatory frameworks for rural electrification. So helping governments design regulations and programs to bring electricity access to rural sub-Saharan Africa. And then decided it was time for me to be on the money side of things. So shifted over into impact investing. So moved back to the U.S. and led the impact investing team at Vulcan, which is the family office of Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. So investing in clean tech companies. And then I was really excited by the startup world. So I ran a startup called Brooklyn Microgrid, which was one of the first peer-to-peer energy transactive companies. Blockchain-based, it was all the buzzwords. Wasn't that LO3? Yeah, so LO3 is the parent company. I'm from Brooklyn originally, so I, Got it. <laughs> I've always been interested in that project. Yeah, definitely a really fascinating way to look at energy and how we use it and how we share it. And then finally made my way to founding my own company, Yield Positive, and working with McKinstry, continuing on that idea, how do we share energy and use it more efficiently? Very cool. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had along the way? Yeah, I've had many setbacks. Well, you wouldn't know it from your description of your prior background. It sounded very straight and true. Well, one of the reasons that I've done so many things in my background is because one of my setbacks, considering, you know, that we might see up to 30% unemployment in the future, hopefully we won't get that high, but I thought it was a fitting time to talk about one of my big setbacks has been that I've been laid off a number of times. I work on innovation, so I'm always at the cutting edge of technologies or business models And when that's the case, when there's an economic downturn or when a technology or business model just becomes business as usual, it's sometimes not a right fit for somebody who works on innovation. So I've been unemployed a number of times and I've learned how to deal with it. Being unemployed can be really tough. And I feel for all the people right now who have lost their jobs because of the pandemic and 
I'm definitely lucky and I learned the hard way the first time to always have a cushion during times of unemployment and I've learned how to use it to pivot, to learn new skills, to start a company. But it's a challenge. Losing your job is hard and for everybody out there who is unemployed right now, my thoughts go to you and I hope people are able to use this time to find something interesting to do and give themselves a break as well. Part of the price of following your dreams and following your passion is that you won't just take any job. You want a specific job, a specific opportunity that does something for you. I admire people that are able to, at a young age, chase their dreams instead of just chase money. It comes with a lot more risk, but I think you get a lot more satisfaction out of what you do. I totally agree. The risk is clear by the fact that I have lost my job a number of times. And again, I'm lucky to be in a place where I'm able to afford it. And I started investing early on in a sustainable way. And I love what I do. I wake up every morning excited about going to work. And whenever I'm not excited about work, then I realize it's time to start thinking about how to change something because I have the coolest job in the planet. And that's awesome. Well, I think when you look back, you're going to be very happy that you chased your passion and your dreams. Yeah, I definitely will be. So I made you talk about the setbacks. Can you talk about the successes that you're most proud of? Yeah, equal to the fact that I've had a lot of setbacks. I've also had so many successes and so many things that I'm proud of. When I was in Rwanda, I helped the UK government, the Department for International Development, to design the first results-based financing program for the energy sector. So results-based financing has grown as a way for donors to feel that their funds are being used properly. And so it was used quite a bit in the healthcare sector. And then I helped design one of the first programs. So it was for renewable energy and energy efficiency companies. And following the success of sales of products, then they would receive this extra funding from donors. And so that project started off fairly small and it grew to having 390 million euros deployed and helping 19 million people across the world. I'm pretty proud of that from a project point of view. And then I think from a personal point of view, I really live by my climate values and I, I don't preach to anybody if somebody's you know eating meat in front of me, I will never be the one to say, oh, do you know about your emissions from your cow that you're eating? That is not how I work at all. But I find that most people who know me start to think differently about climate change because of just all these individual actions that I take and because I've done a lot of really fascinating things in the sector and they can be fun to talk about. And I've had people who never even heard of climate change before meeting me, then come back to me a couple of years later saying, oh, that climate change, we're talking about it at my company. How do we grow this? How do we expand this? And that's a really amazing feeling. You're one of the most passionate climate champions I've talked to so far. So now I'm a little bit nervous talking to you and asking you this question, but what's your vision for the future? Where do you see the world 20, 30, 40 years from now, climate change wise? I am definitely an eternal optimist. I could not have survived almost 20 years in this sector and however many more decades if I wasn't. But on the negative side of things, I do feel like the most vulnerable communities will be significantly harmed by climate change. We have acted too slowly. And even if we were to stop all emissions today, the impacts will continue 
And so that's people in developing countries, that's impoverished communities in developed countries. It's just those are the people who will not be able to respond to the impacts of climate change. I remember really early on, so I did an internship at the EPA, which was interesting. So under the Bush senior years, and got told that if I talked about climate change and humans in the same sentence, I was going to get in trouble and another email. But also at this time, I went to see when I was a bright eyed little teenager, I went to see a climate denier speak. And I remember him saying it was a climate denier who was shifting over to, OK, climate change is happening. And he said, well, but if it gets hotter, we'll just turn up our air conditioning. And that just infuriated me. And sadly, I think that is still going to be the case that those who are wealthy enough will be able to turn up their air conditionings and protect their homes from floods and whatever else and the vulnerable communities will. But on the cheerier side of things... Here's the optimist part coming. Exactly. Here's the optimist part. We are making a lot of progress. You know, I think watching the renewable energy sector has been just so exciting. Seeing where solar and wind and storage was 20 years ago compared to seeing where it is now is just absolutely amazing. Seeing these oil and gas companies talking about how they're cutting their budgets for oil and gas, or for oil at least, and focusing on renewables. Seeing the growth of EVs after the supposed death of EVs, they came back to life. And I think with electric vehicles, we're going to see a huge shift in that. So I think we've seen such exciting growth. We've seen Europe really take a lead and developing countries on strong regulatory frameworks. We've seen this technology growth and we're seeing a lot of individual actions, you know, the the Greta movement and the movement of the youth. Our youth are powerful and that's awesome to see how they are really focused on saving their futures as they should be. Can you talk about how coronavirus has changed your vision? Do you think there's any impact from it? Yeah, I think definitely the impact on oil that I talked about before, that is huge. And that's changing a lot of the world's vision of how we look at energy. From a sustainable investing point of view, people have often thought, oh, if I invest sustainably, I'm going to have to give up some of the profit side of things. And seeing ESG funds outperform, I think, has been great to dispel that myth. So I think from a lot of angles, from understanding that we could take collective action and when we all feel that we have something to gain, and then also from the energy and investment sides. Do you have any questions for me? I do. So I know you're quite the improv star, (laughs) (laughs) or you do improv. And I've heard from some other people I really admire how improv has helped them in their career. So I'd love to hear the top two things that you have learned through improv that are useful in your career and also as climate change communicators, right? How do we better kind of get this story out there? And as an improv storyteller, what are your two tips? One is I used to be very scared when I had to speak in public. I would actually physically shake if I had to speak in public. And my first improv shows, I shook. I was so nervous. But a few months after I started doing improv, I had to give a presentation to the CEO, Jimmy Tribig at Tandem Computers. And I was very nervous. And one of the more senior people said, what are you so nervous about? You get in front of audiences, not knowing what you're going to say, and you're able to be funny and 
speak clearly? How can you be concerned when you are the absolute expert in a technology and you know what the technology is, you know what you're going to say, that should be a lot easier. And it gave me a lot of confidence. The combination of him saying that, me thinking about it, and the fact that I had that in my background. And it was. It was a great presentation. We got funded. Awesome. I guess the other is that it allows me to use the other side of my brain. I feel like I'm often trapped in this very technical type of thinking where things have to always make sense and be logical. And when I get to do improv, my mind gets to go to other places And that gives me a balance. And I think the balance makes both sides better. And I think it's important for people to have that. That's my top two. And I do think everybody should take improv classes and workshops, you know, just to learn the techniques that help you to be positive and to think on your feet. Yeah. I did take one improv class. And one thing that I also really enjoyed from it was seeing how you had to work together for some of the exercises. If you ever just were focused on yourself, it didn't work. It wasn't funny. It was awkward. But when you're able to bounce off of each other and work collectively, then it can be hilarious. It amazes me that two or three or four people, sometimes that have not met before, can get a suggestion from the audience and build a comedic scene right there just because they've both been trained in the same capability to say yes and to add and to let it go. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to say? I would just say being the eternal optimist, I think we all need notes of hope right now. We are in a really tough situation. Economically, people are lonely, they're isolated. And, you know, we'll we'll get through this. I think it's been really encouraging to see people doing so many innovative things to get the arts out, to help their neighbors, to help fun small businesses. And we could do the same for climate change too. (laughs) So I had to make that plug of hope and optimism, both for the time of COVID-19, but also for the times of climate change. That's awesome. And I agree with you. And if that's all, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. Australia down below. Courtney decided to go toe. Wrote a paper about protocol called Kyoto. You decided your personal resources you would bring because climate change is important and exciting and it impacts everything. You were curious with your colleagues. You did Panda with rural farmers about climate change while living in Rwanda. The pandemic has caused turbulence and a lot of toil caused negative demand and prices, perhaps the peak of oil. Climate policy in Europe, it's clear over there, but you fear not as clear as signals over here. Sustainable investment triple play is people profit planet. Yield positive targets exactly that, and that's why you began it. We should invest in sustainable assets instead of the norm. It's great to see ESG funds outperform. To reduce waste and improve built environment efficiency, Courtney went to consult for the innovative McKinstry. 390 million euros deployed and helping 19 million people got you dancing. You helped the UK with energy results-based financing. When people eat meat, you hold back from saying, wow, do you know all the emissions that came from that cow? Solar storage and cutting oil budgets are easing some strife. And EVs are not dead. 
they've come back to life. The youth movement is powerful. It makes you less upset. A big reason to be thankful for the youth and Greta. But progress is going too slowly. You do insist. Still, you survive because you're an eternal optimist. (laughs) Great. Although... Too slowly, but we're going. We're going. Going to end on the optimistic note. It was exciting to hear all about the interesting and diverse experiences Courtney had pursued, from working with farmers in Rwanda to heading Paul Allen's family office impact investing team managing solar mini grids in rural Kenya and to being managing director of the first blockchain-based peer-to-peer Brooklyn microgrid in my hometown, as well as launching her own company, Yield Positive. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe Rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Whenever it is dry and warmish, you can find Courtney scaling her way up a mountain face. She's summited Kilimanjaro, hiked to Everest Base Camp, and she's training to summit Mount Rainier. Climbing helps her to clear her brain, and many of her best ideas come after having reached that zen state during a hard climb. A passion to overcome obstacles and get to the top of your personal mountain is critical to mitigate climate change.